Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. As the world continues to deal with the fallout from COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, nurses like Katie McMurray and her colleagues at Danbury Hospital in Danbury, Connecticut, are doing their part to treat patients who come in with coronavirus symptoms. McMurray, a progressive care nurse, is a member of an Orange Legacy family who earned her biology degree from the College of Arts and Sciences. Her hospital in Danbury has seen its share of coronavirus patients, including treating the state's first COVID-19 patient, Chris Tillett. He was in a medically induced coma before recovering from the disease. McMurray discusses how the hospital responds whenever someone is suspected of being COVID positive. She also shares how she copes with the anxiety of being a nurse during this pandemic and reveals how the lessons she learned from her time with Syracuse University Ambulance taught her to respond to emergency situations. We talked to you last week about a pair of alumni who are working to bring face shields uh, using their 3D printing technologies to our healthcare workers on the front lines. Well, today we are pleased to have on Katie McMurray, an alumna of the class of 2013. And Katie, you know, thank you so much, not only for your service um, as as a registered nurse, but also for making the time today to come on the podcast. Thank you so much, John, for having me. There's no place I'd rather be. Katie's got a fascinating story to tell. She's a, a member of a legacy family. Uh, both her her father and her uncle are proud Syracuse University alumni. Um, she was a member of the Syracuse University Ambulance Program here on campus, and she has a really cool story to tell. But right now, I think the most pressing uh, part of Katie's story is the work that's being done, again, in the fight against COVID-19. Katie, you're obviously these, you know, you're working some pretty crazy shifts. You know, no, I know nurses normally are superheroes with you know, they're putting themselves on the line to protect our nation's patients and, and help people get better. But it's got to be especially stressful and taxing right now. I guess the first question is, how are you holding up uh, in the midst of all of this chaos of the pandemic? I'm doing the best I can. Um, everybody has a, you know, a differing sense of anxiety uh, in regard to the virus and our exposures. Um, I have been taking care of these patients and I'm doing the best that I can to keep myself protected. I've always been a bit neurotic with hand washing. I've been known to carry Purell around with me anyway. So I do have a bit of alligator hands, but um, I am lucky to work for a well-prepared health network that even though we are sharing struggles like other hospitals across the country in regard to PPE, we are still securing through our um, supply chain management to get the equipment that we need. And we are very lucky to be part of a very generous community who has meal trains for hospital workers, as well as we've had many donations of different different types of PPE, whether it be N95 masks from local Home Depots or other kind of construction companies that may have these products, and uh, as well as homemade masks, which we are gladly accepting. But I've been holding up pretty well. Uh, like I said, I said earlier, um, we do have a sense of anxiety. And um, when I come home, I just try to tune it out as best I can while taking in a limited amount of media to stay updated on what the situation may be. And I do have access to my work email from home. So uh, our uh, hospital has been posting live conferences and constant updates because things are changing so 
so rapidly, be it daily or hourly sometimes. It's been about a month, Katie, since, you know, the Connecticut area had its first <clears throat> confirmed case of the coronavirus. And uh, that was a young man named Chris Tillett. He has appeared on a lot of national broadcasts. Uh, he was in a medically induced coma. He is the uh, proud father of two adorable uh, boys who really stole the show on a lot of those national interviews out there. And he, of course, was treated at Danbury Hospital. And again, that was back in the first week in March, I believe, March 8th, he was diagnosed as the first confirmed COVID-19 patient uh, in Connecticut. You uh, and the rest of your team of nurses and doctors, physicians, um, were given a lot of credit for helping with Chris's recovery. And I know you weren't directly, it wasn't like you you know, were his, his assigned you know, full-time nurse, but you were part of the staff there that was treating uh, Chris and, and helping him get back on his feet. He's expected to make a full recovery, which is a, is a miracle, again, given you know, where he was only a couple of weeks ago. Can you take us through that experience of being in a hospital and having someone come in and what this whole experience has been like, you know, especially knowing that there's so much unknown and so much anxiety around COVID-19. So we are professionals. We are. I have a bunch of friends that work down in the emergency department and they are doing the best they can to keep these patients separated from maybe general population air quotes, but run of the mill uh, emergencies like uh, COPD exacerbations or something like that. We have to keep these patients separated. So I know the ER nurses are taking this extremely seriously, this entire staff down there. Um, and trying to keep these patients away from each other so that we control this virus and, you know, flatten the curve as best we can. Um, and it's it was really great to read. Like you said, I wasn't directly involved with his case, so I can't speak directly to that. But it is great to be working um, with the critical care team that helped cure this man and uh, was able to get him back to his family. I know his wife is also a registered nurse, and it's very hard for her and for other families that um, are in the same situation that they can't see their loved one. We have a no visitor policy just like everywhere else in the state. And it's, it's very hard, especially as I have been taking care of either rule out patients or confirmed patients and some in general, just you know, other non-COVID related cases. And of course I put people on comfort measures only at the request of their family. And it's hard because these people can't be with their loved one at the at the end of their life. Um, so I've been involved with uh, using the Zoom conference app to let these people see their loved ones for the last time. So that has to be so emotional. It is. So it is. And I love end of life care. I love hospice care. I think it's a wonderful thing, and that uh, that's a, maybe a different conversation to have. But um, I love doing that for people. But it's it's hard not to have their loved ones there for them. It really is heartbreaking. And and and, yep. and obviously, it's hard not to uh, you know you're you're a human being first and foremost. I know you're a very talented nurse, but you know when it comes down to it, we're all human beings. We all have emotions. It's hard not to break up and and feel really just. Your, your heartstrings are being tugged at when you're watching patients. They can't have any loved ones around them and they're passing on. It's, it's an unbelievably sad situation. How do you try to, in this really trying time for these patients and their families, what kind of comfort can you offer um, as, as a registered nurse, especially when you know that these people are dealing with news that maybe a couple weeks ago they never expected to hear? Well, I, I feel personally for myself, um, that I've had great experiences throughout my life that really have led me to feeling comfortable with end of life care. 
uh, I, when I first graduated from Syracuse, I took a job as a medical assistant in the chemotherapy infusion suite at the same hospital that I work at now. And I love oncology and I've become very comfortable with end of life care as well as just general um, emotional care and empathy for people working in oncology. And I think that has helped me and given me the tools and resources to deal with my own emotions and put that aside so that the most important thing is to the gift of time, just giving those people what they need and not ignoring all of your other responsibilities, but prioritizing that and giving them your time, whether it be just silently holding hands, you taking the iPad and giving them the, the last few minutes with their family, or just my favorite thing to do as a nurse, even if I have a million other things to do, I love cleaning people up. I'll brush their hair, brush their teeth, wash their face, <laughs> nudge them up a little bit. It's it's little things, and it really is the gift of time and your attention, whether it be if somebody isn't communicating with you at the end of their life, get, being attuned to other clues as to if they're in pain. Maybe they need something, either if they have their prescribed morphine, maybe they can't tell you that they're in pain, but you – have honed your assessment skills enough to know that that person's in pain or what they may need. So time is the most important thing. Well, we definitely appreciate, you know, Katie, when you're going around giving your time to these, these patients and their families, again, it's, it's an unenviable position, but you know, you sign up to give back and to help those who are in times of need. And right now it's been a long time since we've seen a situation where we've been in as much of a crisis mode as we are right now. There's still so much uncertainty. People are afraid. You know, you you go out and, and thankfully more people are practicing social distancing, but unfortunately it feels like it's going to get worse uh, before it gets better. With, with Chris Tillett having been one of the first confirmed cases on March 8th, we're now almost a month later. Um, how, what kind of influx has the hospital seen as far as patients testing positive for COVID? How many cases are you currently dealing with the patients who are positive for COVID-19? From what I understand, and of course, I'm not a hospital spokesperson, so I can't give exact numbers or um, concrete answers, but I know that we have seen an influx and we are not yet at our peak. Uh, Danbury was one of the first places in Connecticut, if not the first, if I'm correct, to um, offer a drive-through testing service. And I know a bunch of nurses that have been staffing that and testing people. So, we, of course, we're going to see an influx of people being tested and testing positive, whether they are symptomatic or not. Um, but we have been seeing a lot of people who get admitted to the hospital and perhaps they don't have the classic symptoms, but either on imaging we see or they start to have symptoms a few days later. Um, it is possible for this virus to from what we understand, being dormant a little while. And then all of a sudden, we'll start seeing low-grade fevers and have no clear source of infection and have to rule these people out. I feel that we have been more prepared compared to maybe some other stories that I've heard across the country, either from other nurses or from the news. Um, I feel like our hospital network has been more well-prepared. And perhaps that's because we have clinical leadership versus perhaps more business-minded leadership, but our CEO is a physician himself. We have our chief nursing officer. And I think these people really do um, understand what it is like to be at the bedside and have made their decisions um, to protect their staff over 
anything else, really. I just feel I feel good about being part of our network and the work that we've been doing, especially having the example of Chris and his amazing recovery and other people that haven't been public about it. So I, I feel quite good, even if there is a certain level of anxiety amongst the staff in what could happen and what our exposures are. Of course, we're worried for our families. I'm lucky enough to be childless at this time. I mean, I do have my dog who's currently sitting on my lap and I do have my <laughs> but um, there is a level of anxiety and we've been making jokes that, you know, all of our neighbors are seeing us naked, stripping outside of our houses to immediately put our clothes in the laundry and the constant washing of hands. And the immediate showers afterwards. Of course, I was careful before. I would never bring my work shoes inside the house. But now I have a I have a changing screen in front of my door so I can strip down before I get into the house. <laughs> I can't even pick up my dog until I take a shower. So, yeah, there is anxiety. But um, we, we're trying to temper that with, you know, the studies that are coming out, the information that we do know, and practicing good hygiene and safety practices while we're at work. So can you go a little more in depth, Katie, into as your role as a progressive care nurse, let's say one of the the floors you happen to be on that day, the alert goes out that there's a patient who has tested positive for COVID-19. What role would you play in working with the talented team of physicians and other healthcare workers in a case like that? Sure. Um, So let's say this patient came in from the ER and they are a chronically ill person. Or maybe they could be a healthy person, but they are having active symptoms, and we suspect them to be COVID positive. We would separate them in the ED. We would test them. And depending on the level of care required, we would admit them to the proper floor. So a progressive care unit, um, at least how it works in Danbury in particular, is a medical critical care floor. So patients that require a higher level of care than a normal hospital floor. If they were sick enough to require a higher level of care, but maybe not need to be intubated and ventilated, they would likely come to us. So whether that be they are having other cardiac issues, if they require certain types of um, breathing help, perhaps they would come to our floor and I could be assigned as their primary nurse, which would be the nurse administering the care, treatments, interventions, and speaking with either the critical care doctor or an intensivist or the hospitalist in regards to where we're going to direct their care and what their needs may be. So if a person needs to be intubated, they automatically earn themselves a ICU position because we are not uh, critical care certified and we are not trained on ventilator use. Though there has been a push even across the country to train nurses, floor nurses, retired nurses on how to manage these patients on ventilators. Um, If the patient is having symptoms but maybe doesn't need that higher level of care, they could be admitted. We have closed certain floors in our hospital to be COVID units whether it's positive or rule outs. And then obviously it all depends on the severity of the case and, and the treatment's going to be provided as, as best to the knowledge of yourself and your, your team of colleagues. But it, you mentioned the anxiety factor behind this. Is it, how do you try to compartmentalize, obviously being a nurse, you did this to give back, right? You wanted to get involved to 
help people who are again in a time of need. But this is a totally different circumstance than seeing somebody who might be in for a, a regular malady that needs to get treated. Is it possible to compartmentalize those emotions that come along with knowing how uncertain things are right now? Of course it's possible. Um, at least it's possible for me. Some people may not, may be different, just different personalities, but when there's a job that needs to be done, you have to get it done. So um, you can only do the best that you can and push that, that anxiety aside and do your job. And I, I've found that I can do that easily. Some other people may not be able to do that easily, but they also may not be in the same position as me. They may be either in a different healthcare position or they may be in a different position entirely. For me, I find that I'm able to carry out what I need to do and just do the best that I can to protect myself and my patients and my colleagues as well. We definitely appreciate, Katie, all the service and all the the, the efforts that you and your healthcare colleagues are putting in. Again, you, you see the nightly news and they always try to end with some positive and you see people applauding their nurses and doctors from afar. And, and there's a lot of support right now for the, the healthcare community. And we definitely tip our hat to you and your fellow colleagues who are doing your best to, to help us out and get through this really crazy chaotic time known as the coronavirus pandemic. What did, what did make you want to get into nursing in the first place? Why was this a career path you wanted to get involved with? Well, um, I mean, of course I want to help people, but you can get into retail and help people. Um, I've always been fascinated by the human body and how it works. I studied biology when I was at Syracuse. Um, I became an EMT there. I originally thought, you know, maybe I'd go to medical school after that. And then, you know, I got to Syracuse and realized, oh, there's a lot of other people that are smarter than me or just as smart as me. I'm not the <laughs> class anymore like I was in high school. Um, but I did have a lot of help while I was at Syracuse. I used um, health services, health care advising services um, and was able to shadow and have a lot of great opportunities that really helped guide my um, decision into what I wanted to do uh, following graduation. So after I got a, graduated and got my job at Danbury Hospital in chemotherapy, I saw how involved nurses were and really getting you know your hands dirty, so to speak, of course. <laughs> Um, <laughs> of course, <laughs> or getting your gloves dirty, if you if you will. Um, that's when I decided that was for me, and I pursued that uh, career following graduation. You had some experiences too, obviously, with what you're dealing with now when it comes to right. You you were a member of Syracuse University Ambulance, which again is a great affinity based group here on campus. What are some of those memories you have of being with your fellow SUA? you know, members and, and how did that, how do those experiences kind of prepare you for the work that you're doing now? Well, for one, I am not uh, scared to drive to work in the snow. <laughs> I started <laughs> on SUA as a, um, as a attendant and I took the course to become a driver first. So I drove for the ambulance for quite some time while I took the EMT course. And then I served as the main EMT on, um, on a crew that I would that I would be on. So how SUA worked, at least at the time, I'm still involved following them on social media and the stories that are going on. And we have a tight knit um, alumni group, but um, we would have a driver an EMT and potentially another uh, member, whether it be an attendant or a second EMT on the, on the rig, as you would say. But we've had, we had great memories. We would always have great end of year banquets, um, just fun in um, quarters, which used to be at 111 Waverly, I believe it's in Lyman Hall now. But um, 
Yeah, there's there's a few times, you know, I'd finally get to sleep in quarters at three in the morning. The lights would come on, the bell would ring, and off we would go in, you know, a foot of fresh snow to go get somebody <laughs> the hospital and there is some <clears throat> some scary times being the driver there but like i said uh uh i'm not afraid to drive to work now and uh in you know two inches of snow while some other people may be freaking out <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it, it's awesome and there's such a tight-knit bond it really does seem like with uh, you know i've got a bunch of friends of mine who are also members of you know sua and, and it's just such a i don't know if you the one of the cool parts about syracuse and i, I obviously you know we're talking here uh, with a, an alum, Katie McMurray, who uh, studied biology at Syracuse University. She works as a progressive care nurse at Danbury Hospital in, in Danbury, Connecticut. And, uh, and, and you know, you have such a tight affinity when it comes to these groups of working with Syracuse University Ambulance because you're so reliant on your colleagues to get the job done. And if one person isn't holding up their end of the bargain, I feel like it's such an invaluable lesson to have, especially in a field like yours, where again, you're a vital part of a cog, but if one person doesn't do their job, the team can't advance and get their mission accomplished. Right, right. And it also showed us how to work within a group and to rely on those people and to really um, figure out what needed to be done at that moment, rapid triage, um, rapid treatment plans just to get these people in a safe spot. Um, I'm really grateful to SUA for teaching me how to respond in an emergency. Um, we always took great classes with Ed Moser of what was rural Metro, um, ambulance in, um, Syracuse. And that's where we would take our EMT classes. And I'm very grateful for him and Dave Shalala, who I know is the current teacher of the program, uh, they really taught us the skills that would help us throughout our, our lives. And even on those groups, it's always fun to see um, people who are alumni of either the EMT class or SUA. What are they doing now? Some people are uh, lawyers. Some people are doctors. Some people are nurses. It's, it's great to see. And um, it's heartening to know that there are other alumni out there that have gotten the same training as me and know how to respond in an emergency or a crisis. So I feel confident that we'll be able to handle the current pandemic and crisis that we're facing. Speaking of uh, fellow alumni, you come from an orange tree that includes your, your father, Kevin, uh, your uncle, Joseph McMurray, both graduated from, from Syracuse university. Was there ever a doubt Katie that you were going to end up at Syracuse or how did that conversation kind of play out when it came to choosing a college? You know what? It wasn't until I believe that I actually started applying to colleges that I realized how groomed I was. I didn't notice that a basketball that my, my dad had on display in his office was a <laughs> Syracuse branded basketball or the hats that he would wear or the shirts or, you know, the random little, little kids shirts that I would have that said Syracuse. I said, wait a second, were you grooming me this whole time to go there? But I came to the decision on my own. I, I knew I wanted to go in upstate New York. I also applied to a few other schools up there, but um, Syracuse became my number one once I visited the campus. I believe I was 16 years old, and my dad took me up there for um, juniors in high school. And he said, Katie, don't get used to this. It was a 95-degree day, and I believe it was <laughs> I was wearing shorts. I was wearing a tank top. And then for accepted students day, 90 degrees again, we were walking around campus and my dad said, Katie, I'm telling you, do not get used to this. <laughs> <laughs> Especially 
year, it wasn't too bad. But my sophomore year, I remember a few times getting four feet of snow in a weekend. And of course, you know, me and my friends would be walking around in our stiletto heels. That didn't change. You know, Syracuse alumni, we don't let the weather impact or change our way of life, especially with everything being so you know, close to campus, it's not that hard or that unbearable to walk four or five minutes to go to a different extracurricular activity outside of class. We're tough like that. Yes, we are. And uh, I always say down here in Connecticut, oh my God, the plowing is awful. But up in Syracuse, within a half hour, that that snow is cleared and it's about a foot more than <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great to hear. It's great to reminisce and hear some of the stories. And uh, I want to take you down memory lane a little bit now, too, with your time at Syracuse. What are some of your favorite memories? What really stands out to you from you know your time at Syracuse? Well, I'm still extremely close to all of my friends. Um, we had a very tight-knit group of friends that... Um, I I met one person randomly walking the quad. We lived in the same dorm. I had a friend from high school that lived in another dorm and we all just kind of pulled together and became this group of six, seven, eight. It grew, of course. Um, We still all hang out um, and I'll be getting married at Hendricks Chapel this summer. I mean, depending on how it goes, if it's just us two or if it's 170 people in attendance, that's going to happen. But um, Syracuse, there's, too many memories to to go back on. I want to go back though, Kate. I can't gloss over the Hendricks Chapel uh, wedding just that easily. It's so cool that you're. There's so many couples we hear of that get married there. It's such a special place. But I think your story is a little bit different because you're marrying uh, someone who is not a Syracuse alum. Uh, they're from a rival school, Connecticut, when we used to be in the Big East uh, together. And now, um, obviously, you know, it's how did that all come to be? That conversation because. Some might say there's some rivalry out there, Syracuse and Connecticut. I guess, how did you meet your uh, your fiance and how did you guys have that conversation about getting married on campus? So he and I had some friends in common. And while I was a junior up in Syracuse, um, we went on a few dates back home and he decided to come visit me. And he said, oh, you know, I think I could come visit once a month. And I said, great, great. That quickly became every weekend. <laughs> so um, <laughs> here's my senior. Um, he's six years older than me. So he had been well-graduated and an established professional. But he came to visit me every weekend, and we started to joke that he was getting his master's degree at Syracuse. So it, it wasn't a hard decision to decide that's where we wanted to get married. Um, we're actually having our reception at another alumni, um, Bill Eberhardt's, um, restaurant in Skinny Atlas, where will be our reception. It's called uh, the Sherwood Inn. So that was also oh, another yes. easy decision to make. <laughs> the Sherwood is iconic. It's legendary for people who haven't had a chance to go. Once once it's all gets lifted, go visit Skinny Atlas. Go see the Sherwood. There's so many great places right on the lake. You can go. It's a beautiful, picturesque little town. But that's so cool, Katie, that you guys are having a reception at the restaurant of another alum and then getting married at Hendricks Chapel. Hopefully everything blows over and you're able to proceed with all your wedding plans and celebrate your special day because really it's just, you know, I think we'll appreciate everything so much more having gone through the shelters in place and the quarantine once we actually are able to make it out on the other side. I, I hope that's the case as well. Um, and just going back a, a quick second to the rivalry of UConn versus Syracuse, uh, I like to take him to basketball and occasionally football games where we would, we at the time when I was attending, we were still in the Big East and playing UConn quite frequently. 
every time we saw them, Syracuse won. So <laughs> we won the decision in the in the wedding venues as well. You know, you could always take him down memory lane to the six overtime game in the Big East tournament, which I know ESPN has been airing sporadically with no live sports out there. And every time I I see that in Devendorf's on the table, even though the shot didn't count, that was the moment where I'm like, you know what? They're going to find a way to win this because that team was just so confident in themselves and and their abilities. And and they made history. <laughs> the marathon men. Oh, my God. I That was the year um, I was accepted into Syracuse and I knew I was going there. And I remember watching that game at the restaurant I worked at downstate um, and saying, that's going to that's going to be where I am next year. And of course, you know, in my time, we made it to the final four, which was another amazing memory, how much fun we had and everybody packed like sardines into chucks. Um, I have a picture of my best friend, Amy, carrying six different beer pitchers over a crowd of sardines watching the game. <laughs> we didn't win that game, but, you know, there, there was such a great sense of community. And I feel like that's a, such a wonderful part of Syracuse. Um, the alumni group is that we're all so close and that we have such great orange pride. Oh yeah. People will do anything they can for a fellow alum. It's one of the best parts about being a member of this alumni association is the looking out for your fellow alumni. And clearly Katie, you're doing great work along with your healthcare workers and colleagues uh, down at the Danbury hospital in Danbury, Connecticut. We wish you nothing but the best stay safe and stay well. And please keep up all your great work with your, uh, your healthcare colleagues. We need every single effort and every single ounce of effort that your colleagues are putting in, because right now you guys are doing great work trying to keep us all safe. So please keep up the good work and uh, stay safe and stay well. Thank you so much. You as well, John. And just remember everybody stay at home, do your part and encourage others to do the same. We'll flatten the curve together. Love it. That's wise words of advice from Katie McMurray, an alumna of the class of 2013, who was kind enough to join us here on the Cuse Conversations podcast. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. <laughs>